plug in for the Christmas concert. It's a week from today, next Sunday night. And uh, one of the sweet things about Christmas is um, remembering the songs that you listened to a year ago, uh, Christmas carols, Christmas songs, and sort of uh, enjoying those again. And I'm sure that all of you waited until the day after Thanksgiving to start listening to Christmas music because that's the appropriate thing to do. So, um, but hopefully, we're kind of kicking off the season this year with the Christmas concert, so kind of refresh you, your memory of some of those songs, draw you into those truths that are taught there, and uh, looking forward to that next Sunday night at 6, so I hope you'll be here for that. I hope your Thanksgiving went well, Um, you were able to celebrate with family and friends, hope it was a sweet time. One of the things that is always fascinating to me about Thanksgiving is Uh, And I'm not the first person to draw attention to this, but I'm amazed by it. Every year we spend Thanksgiving Day, um, you know, thanking the Lord uh, for the gifts that he gives us, the abundance that we have, and then the very next day is Black Friday, and we go and get in fights at stores, and, um, you know, it's... uh, we all rush out to get discounted items, and I, I get it, like, there's nothing wrong with purchasing things at a sale price, but it is ironic um, in our culture that we, we spend Thursday um, rejoicing and feasting, which, you know, feasting is a, a way of acknowledging that God has given us abundance. Um, it is a good thing to do that from time to time, not every day, but from time to time. That is a, a very biblical thing to do, to feast and say, God, you've given us so much. We want to experience that and rejoice in that. And then we, on Friday, go out and um, buy lots of things because we already don't have enough things uh, in our culture, you know? Um, And, you know, in a lot of ways, if you just look at it culture-wide, it's really a symptom of our obsession with stuff. Uh, And I think we would all, if we're honest, would say we, we do tend to have an obsession with stuff. We think we, we need more stuff. We have the biggest economy in the world. And I know not everyone in our country is completely provided for in the ways that so many of us are, but most of us will spend lots and lots of more money this holiday season to try to find the right gifts and buy more things. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a reality of the world in which we live and a, the culture in which we live. Um, and when you see that, Uh, It's interesting how things sort of flow in cycles and there's reactions to tendencies like uh, our obsession with stuff. I don't know if you've heard about this philosophy of life that has become more and more prevalent over the last few years called minimalism. Have any of you heard of minimalism? A few people have. Okay. Um, I did some reading on this this week, and there's two guys that have sort of put this together and promoted this philosophy of life called minimalism, Josh and Ryan, Josh Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, and they say on their website, whether this is true or not, they say there are over 20 million adherents to this philosophy of minimalism. And I do think it's a reaction to just the, the cultural mindset that you need more and more stuff to be happy. And so they say, no, you don't. If you will just focus on what's important, then you can find significance and happiness in your life. Here's the definition of minimalism taken from their website. Minimalism is a tool to rid yourself of life's excess in favor of focusing on what's important so you can find happiness, fulfillment, and freedom. And I do think it is a reaction to our culture, culture of stuff and acquiring things. And I think people feel the 
the pressure uh, and the clutter of modern life. There's just so much happening and so much coming at us and so many options of what to buy, what to get, how to live, that it's helpful to sort of focus in on a few things and give your attention to a few things. Now, I'm not here to critique the philosophy of minimalism, you know, this morning, and I don't want to set up a straw man, but it is interesting as you read that, uh, that definition, as you read about minimalism, they want you to find whatever is most important to, to you, and that could be different for every person. And so you sort of identify what it is that you want in life, and then you kind of clear out the clutter and pursue that thing, whatever it might be. And they don't really ask the question, regardless of your personal taste or ambition, what is the most important thing that you should be pursuing? Um, They don't ask that question. It's more based on the individual. And that's the question that we're going to try to tackle today. What is the most important thing, regardless of what you have, regardless of what your personal preferences are, what is the most important thing across the board for every human being to pursue in life. So open up to Mark chapter 12. You can see the text on the screen there, Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. And we're going to ask ourselves two questions today, two questions to evaluate our ultimate commitments our ultimate commitments, what is driving us in life, what our lives are centered on. If we were to cut everything else away, what would be the centerpiece there? Our ultimate commitments. Two questions to help us evaluate those ultimate commitments. The first one of those questions is the one we've already asked, what matters most? It's in verses 28 to 31. Now, over the last few weeks, as we've been working our way through this section of Mark, Mark 11 through 13, you've seen Jesus pretty much in the same spot geographically. He's in the courtyard of the temple, this huge complex, and groups of religious leaders keep coming up to him, and they confront him, and they're trying to challenge his authority and trying to trip him up. So far, he's dealt with Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, elders. I mean, it's, it's quite a list of people, of important religious leaders. And if you're just looking at this from a human perspective, it really is amazing that he has stood up so well to all of these different questions and challenges that have been thrown at him. And here in verse 28, things start to shift a little bit. And you'll see this played out again next week even further. But it's like the tide is turning here in this the series of confrontations. In verse 28 of chapter 12, we have a single individual who approaches Jesus. It's not a group anymore. There are groups still around, but a single individual approaches him for the first time, and it's a lone scribe. We've seen groups of scribes, but here it's a single scribe who hears him arguing with the Sadducees, and he approaches Jesus And as he approaches Jesus and hears Jesus answering and discussing with the Sadducees, this guy is thoroughly impressed by what he hears. Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. So it's obvious to him that Jesus has this authoritative grasp of the Old Testament scriptures. I don't know if you've ever 
listened to someone speak on a particular topic who it's obvious that they've studied this, they have a thorough insight and grasp of this particular topic, and they are an expert, but that's exactly what the scribe felt here. He came up and he was like, oh my goodness. And so hearing an expert, one of the things that we often want to do is ask them a question. We want to hear them further explain something. And so this guy hears Jesus talking about the Old Testament scriptures, and he takes this opportunity to pose a very important question to Jesus. Look at the rest of verse 28. Seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this question didn't sort of fly in from another planet. This is not the first time that someone in this day would have asked this question. This was a very normal question. It was a topic of discussion for these religious leaders, no doubt for the scribes as well. And really, this is a question of minimalism, isn't it? You had this massive group of commandments and laws that they were, the Jews were supposed to obey. The scribes taught that there were 613 commandments listed in the Torah. And the question here that was discussed regularly during this time was, could you identify a headwater commandment? I mean, could you find the one in the Torah from which all other commandments flowed out into a mighty river? And so this scribe is genuinely asking this question. He's got what appears to be an expert here. No doubt he's heard about Jesus. And so he asks our first question this morning, what matters most? And Jesus apparently is ready with the answer. (laughs) And he gives it to him, verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love is at the heart of this commandment. I mean, you've heard this before. And you're going to see love is at the heart of the second commandment that Jesus lists as well. Now, here's where we run into a problem. When you and I hear that word love, that word has almost lost its meaning for us in the culture that we live in today. It's, it's sort of like Play-Doh. You can form that word and fashion that word to whatever you want it to be and whatever suits you at a given moment. That word is so common. People identify love as being important, and it's so common that we oftentimes lose the dynamic force of love biblically. I was telling Sue this week, she was asking for my sermon title for the bulletin, and I told her, well, this is one of those glorious weeks when there are lots of different options, Sue. There are so many songs written about love that we could just pull one of those titles and stick it in the bulletin, and it would be great. All you need is love. What's love got to do with it? Can't help falling in love. And the list goes on and on. I'm sure you could add many, many more to that. And obviously, I don't want to downplay romantic love, and I like love songs. I think they're helpful, they're beneficial. But when we read this, we want to think carefully about what Jesus means when he says that we are to love God with everything that we have. We don't want to take our culturally conditioned understanding of love and import that into this text. It's like filling your gas tank with water. You're not going to be able to run off of this command efficiently and properly. 
And so when you read this here, I'm sure you know this, but Jesus is quoting this command from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's not coming up with this out of thin air. This is the command from the Torah. And so for us to properly understand what he means by this, I think we need to go back to Deuteronomy 6, and we have to understand what this would have meant to the Jews during that time, and then see how Jesus is transporting this into our new covenant reality today. So turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to read most of this chapter together in chunks, and so it will be helpful if you turn back there. So I realize we're parachuting in here right in the middle of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. So let me tell you what's going on when this text was written, okay? If you remember the history of Israel, Israel left Egypt, they went out, God made a covenant with them at Sinai, gave them the law, and then they proceeded from Sinai to the edge of the promised land, and they were ready to enter the promised land, and they sent 12 spies into the promised land to see if the land was able to be taken, to spy it out, to look at it, and those spies came back, and 10 of them were bad, and two were good. And 10 of them said, we can't take it. They didn't trust God's promise. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, it's it's good. We can do this. We can take the land based on God's promise. And the people went with the 10 spies. And God was so angry with those people who he had brought out of Egypt that he said, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and every single person who is over the age of 20 years old is going to die in the wilderness and not go into the promised land. And so they did that. They wandered. And then you get that second generation of, of Israelites, everyone who was under 20 years of age, All of their elders have died off in the wilderness, and then they come back after 40 years to the edge of the promised land, and they're sitting there at the edge of the promised land, and Moses gives them the book of Deuteronomy. This is a book written to that second generation, and what he's saying is God's promises are still true for you, and he's preparing them to go into the promised land, and he's saying you need to listen, and you need to obey God's word, and you need to remember the things that God has told you once you get into the land. Here's the law reiterated for the second generation so that you can live well in the land. And so it's amazing here because everything in the book of Deuteronomy is written to these Israelites and it's based on God's choice of them as his covenant people. You start with his sovereign redemption of them out of Egypt, his love for them, his choice of them as his people, and his establishment of his covenant with them. And then he gives them these commands to obey when they get in the promised land. They obey him because they have been redeemed from Egypt. And so the people are at the edge of this land, and they're about to go in. And when they go into this land, it's going to be a land that is riddled with idols and idol worship. And they're going to encounter pagan people who are going to tempt them to worship false gods. And so God tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, look down at verse 4, in preparation for that, he says, listen, there are no other gods. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the only true God. There are not many gods that you may worship. There is one God. Because of this, 
you must live in the land with single-hearted devotion to the one true God. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so there you have it. There's the command that Jesus quotes all the way over in Mark chapter 12. So you read this here, and you you know about the situation, the circumstances in which this is written, and then you ask the question, okay, they're supposed to love God, but what will love for God look like in that land? Well, that's what the rest of this chapter is about. What would it look like for the Jewish people to love God and to live in single-hearted devotion to him? Well, let's continue reading. Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Love for God looks like having such single-hearted devotion to him that you talk about it with your children and you teach your children And you talk about how this is the most important part of your life. It's this one true God who redeemed us out of Egypt, and we live and devote our lives to him. We talk about it all the time. They talk about it, and they keep his word close to them. It's always around them. They're always thinking about it. What else does it look like? Verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth." What does it look like to live in love? It looks like when the people go into the land and God gives them so many good gifts and they prosper and they're doing well, they're going to be tempted by that prosperity. They're going to be tempted to go after other gods and give their affection to other gods. And love for the one true God says, I'm not going to forget the redemption that he brought to us. I'm going to remain faithful to him And my love for him will override other blessings and joys that he gives. He gave them so many good gifts, and yet their commitment to him will still override those other good gifts. It will be primary. It will be foundational for them. What else does it look like? Let's keep reading. Verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised." What does it look like? It looks like they obey him. I mean, this is 
straightforward, in your face, and simple to say. Love for God, for the Jewish people, looked like they would obey his commandments. You and I cannot claim to love God while disobeying his commands. Wait a minute. You're telling me I have to obey commands? That sounds legalistic. <laughs> Look down at verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. We tend to think of commands as being harsh, when in reality, God says, I give you these commands for your good. I love you, so I tell you to do these things. We need to like flip the switch in our brain that thinks of commands as harsh and legalistic. Now, certainly, you can add extra commands onto what the Scripture says. You can take away from what the Scripture says. But to obey what God has given in His Word is to respond to His redemption of us and think He, is, he desires to do me good. He loves us, so I obey him out of love for him. So let me summarize what this looks like. For Israel to go into the land and to love God in this passage, as Deuteronomy 6 says, looks like this. Love for God flows from the fact that he is the only true God and that he has redeemed them and made a covenant with them. And that love is expressed in passionate devotion to him, single-hearted worship of him, and obedience based on the reality that God does us good in everything that he commands. That's what love looked like for Israel. So now let's flip that forward to us in the new covenant, and let's say that love for God for you and I today, what Jesus is talking about for us in Mark 12 it grows out of gospel realities. It's based in the covenant that God has made with us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's because he is the one true God, the creator of the world, the redeemer of his people, and it involves all that we are. I mean, you can see that right in Mark chapter 12. Our hearts, our minds, our physical bodies, our emotions, everything about me is given over to serve him, to worship him, and to obey him. That's what love for God looks like. But that's not all that Jesus says in Mark chapter 12. Flip back over there with me, if you're not already there. There's another type of love that he commands, and it flows out of love for God. Look at Mark 12, 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So he's already quoted the first commandment from Deuteronomy 6. You would expect that this would also be a quote from another Old Testament text, and it is. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking these two commands from the Old Testament and he's bringing them together and there would have been a lot of discussion about what the greatest commandment was, but nobody would have brought these two commands together yet. Nowhere can the scholars that I read find where some rabbi said, love God, love others. We sort of take that for granted, but this was the, the inaugural moment of bringing those two together here. 
And so Jesus here takes this second command from Leviticus 19. And so once again, I'd like to ask you to flip over to Leviticus 19, and I want to try to help us understand what love for neighbor looked like for the nation of Israel. Leviticus 19. As we understand what this looked like for Israel, this will inform how we think about love for neighbor now. Because again, so often we import our culturally conditioned understanding of love and even love for others into these biblical texts. And I want to say, what does the Bible teach about love for others? And why did Jesus quote that from this passage, Leviticus 19? Now, Leviticus, everyone's favorite Old Testament book, I understand. This book, though, it can get tedious reading these laws, but this was a strikingly important book for Israel. Because the story I just told you about Israel making a covenant with God, failing to go into the land, and then Deuteronomy comes as a second giving of the law here. This is the first giving of that law, and this, these are the laws that would govern how they were to live in the land. And so this was incredibly important and incredibly significant for them. This is how they would flourish in the land. Remember, these commands are given for their good, to do good to them. And so Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19.18. You can look down there. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself near the end of the verse. But I want to back up a little bit and read with some context to try to help flesh out what this loving your neighbor as yourself means for them. Let's start in verse 9. I'm going to read the whole section down to verse 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, none of you, as far as I know, have vineyards, and you're not responsible to leave the edges of your vineyards for the sojourner to reap. And what you have here is you have all these commands that God gives them, and they seem almost random, and most of them certainly don't, or some of them don't apply to us today at all as we're reading through them. But what ties all of these commands together, and many commands throughout Leviticus and other Old Testament books is, these commands govern interpersonal relationships. God is telling the people, this is how I want you to deal with one another when you get into the land. And these are specific examples, but the whole purpose here is to train the people to know how to respond and how to live rightly with one another. And you can even see there in verse 18, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the guiding principle 
for all of these commands. All of us have some level of self-preservation and self-love, self-focus, don't we? We want to do good to ourselves. You know, we, we don't want to always take the worst option available to us. We like ourselves, and that's a very natural way to go about life. There's a survival instinct that is there and that is God-given. But love for others means that I'm able to turn that desire to do good to myself out to other people and to learn to do good to them. And that's the thread that ties all these commands together. God's just saying, what do you want done to you? Do it to other people. And here's how this works itself out. Live like this in your interpersonal relationships. I have a a nifty feature on my phone, and my phone's a couple years old, so I have no idea what's on the new phones. But I have a cool feature on the camera on my phone that you can focus on an item and blur the background. I know for you photographers, it's like, yeah, we've been able to do that for years and years and years. But I'm no photographer, and it's really neat. You can focus on something, take the picture, blur the background out, and it comes out looking really nice. Too much of our lives are spent blurring everyone else into the background. And so what Jesus is saying and what God is saying in Leviticus is, rather than keeping you and your wants and your needs as the center and as the point of focus, blur yourself a little bit and let others come into the focus out of the background. Live that way with other people. Why? Look at the end of verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love of neighbor is rooted in the character of God. You love others because you love God, just like Jesus explains it in Mark chapter 12. How can we disdain God's image bearers and claim to love God? It doesn't work. And so that's the answer. Go back to Mark 12 to our first question. What matters most? Love of God, love of neighbor. And here's our second question. What matters to me? What matters to me? This brings the first question directly to bear on our lives. Now, this isn't the same thing as asking, what does this passage mean to me? That's not what I'm doing here. I'm not looking for some subjective interpretation of Jesus's words here. But I think Mark is writing this in such a way that you and I are meant to ask this question. How do I respond to Jesus's words? Why do I think Mark's writing in it in that way? Well, because of the scribe. I think the scribe is here to help it this passage focus on you and I and to help us evaluate this. The scribe asks, he's interested, he wants to know what's the greatest commandment. And then when Jesus gives him the greatest commandment and then another one, the scribe responds and Mark records that response here. And I think we are to evaluate our response in light of verses 32 through 34. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, 
You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe agrees. He's quite pleased with the answer that Jesus gives. And he says twice, you are right. You have said truly. I mean, he's affirming what Jesus says there. And then he repeats it back to him as a way of agreeing with him. And in fact, he adds another little insight here at the end of this that is pretty compelling. I mean, look what he says there at the end of verse 33. To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That phrasing is used a number of times in the Old Testament And I'll give you one example. Remember in 1 Samuel 15 when Saul was king and Saul was supposed to destroy everything in this one particular city that he was to take and he didn't destroy everything and he kept some of the really good animals and he let the king live. And he said, and Samuel came and confronted him on this and Saul said, oh, but I was going to offer those as a sacrifice to God. I was keeping the best animals for a sacrifice. And Samuel's response to Saul is, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this scribe here takes loving your neighbor and says, to love your neighbor is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice is good. It's not a bad thing for them to do at all. That's not the point here. But to love your neighbor is more important. Sacrifice is only valuable, according to the Old Testament, if it's done out of love for God. And so this scribe is really hitting the nail on the head here, isn't he? And what's amazing is we haven't really seen people respond to Jesus like this very much in the Gospel of Mark, have we? I mean, you think about the disciples back in chapter 8 and their response to Jesus, and they're not getting it at all. They're completely missing the boat. They're fumbling around. They're failing to grasp what he's teaching. And then this guy seems legitimate. You may read this and think, he's probably a good option to replace Peter at this point. This guy is, he's on the money. Head disciple, you know? Agreeing with Jesus, getting what Jesus is saying, applying what Jesus is saying. And so I think Mark intends us to read this and think, yes, that's right. Surely this guy is a part of the kingdom. And Jesus commends his response, but I want you to notice what Jesus says to him specifically here. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely or thoughtfully, there's a good word for that there, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting here that he he doesn't say you're in the kingdom. He doesn't affirm that he has entered the kingdom. And I would say what Mark wants us to think and understand here is that it's not enough to simply agree with Jesus's words here. It's not enough to just say, that's right. It's not enough this morning for my heart to go, "Mm, love God and love neighbor. That's the right thing. It's not enough to feel genuine affection toward God and toward your neighbor. That affection must translate into acts of love and into a changed life. Those who truly love God will, Deuteronomy 6, worship him, serve him, and obey him. 
This man affirmed the right interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. He did. But our interpretation of scripture is meant to reshape the way we live. Augustine, writing about these things, said this. Writing about understanding the Bible and rightly interpreting the Bible. He said, whoever thinks he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but interprets them in a way that does not build up this twofold love of God and love of neighbor, does not truly understand the Scriptures. And so I think this is a clear call from Jesus to say, and from Mark, don't just, don't just affirm what he says here. Don't just affirm that loving God and loving neighbor is good and the most important thing. The Bible is written to transform us and not just inform us. Jesus did not die on the cross for our forgiveness of sins so that we could continue to walk in darkness. He died so that we would love God and love neighbor. And I've been, really, I've been very challenged by this. Um, along with a book I'm reading, I, these things are really coming to bear hard on my life. Am I growing in love for God and others that is demonstrated in my life functionally? What does that look like? Not just do I know how important it is to love God and others. Not just that I agree that loving God and others is significant. But how does my life demonstrate that? So I always feel a tension when I prepare to preach because I, I want every week to proclaim the good news of the gospel and say to you, God loves you and there is unmerited grace that is not based on your works and not based on anything that you could ever do to earn that salvation. You can't contribute to it. And I want to proclaim that. And I want to be clear on that. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus came to give us. And it is my joy to tell you that. And I want to do that. And yet, at the same time, and I think this tension is left in Scripture, purposely. At the same time, if our gospel does not lead to growth and transformation and to people who love God and love others more and more, not perfectly, not completely, but if it doesn't do that, something is not right about the good news that we say we believe and that we proclaim. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness doesn't it? So I want to proclaim the grace of God from the mountaintops. (laughs) I do. And these aren't in contradiction to each each other. They go together. And I think that's what's, what's so challenging about this, is putting the emphasis in the right spot at the right time and where Scripture puts the emphasis. Grace is free and unmerited, and at the same time, grace that doesn't change you should put you in a position to evaluate your life and to wonder if you've truly understood that grace and understood the goodness of God. Or have you believed in a grace that is very naively making a God of your own, 
creation who's not judgmental, who doesn't really care that much about holiness, who just sort of goes along and accepts whatever happens with you in your life. So I ask with Augustine, does your reading of the Bible, does your interaction with the text of Scripture, does your listening to preaching, does my preparation for preaching increase my love of God and love of others? And is that love functionally demonstrated in care for God and affection for him and care and concern for other people? That's, what's matters, that's what matters most in our lives, and that ought to be what matters most to us by the grace of God. Let's pray. God, these are weighty things. I, I feel the pressure even as I'm trying to walk this line and articulate the unmerited favor that you have for us, but then how that unmerited favor changes us and causes love of you and love of others. The Israelites were certainly to demonstrate their love for you by changed lives by worship, service, and obedience. And I pray that that would be true for us as well. I pray that that would be true for me. Give us the grace to look honestly at our lives, but also give us the grace to look fully at the person and work of Jesus Christ and his kindness and love demonstrated in his death on the cross and his resurrection and help that to be what changes us at the deepest level. Help that redemption and that covenant love to rearrange the furniture in our minds and our hearts, to shake things up so that you are first and you are what matters most to us. Thank you for your love, and I pray that we would respond rightly to it. In Jesus' name, amen.